jump straight in. You don't have to do the whole, you know, okay. Muppets thing or whatever, Waldorf. You just, just not going to do that. Not going to do that. We'll just say that it's episode one of the Crude Street Roundtable and yeah. that we're here and we'll introduce ourselves. Yeah, and if James wants to do it every month, I think that's the greatest thing in the world. Then that's what we'll do. There'll be the three of us. We'll do it the last weekend of every month. Okay. So the three of us are, hello, James. Hello. That'd be James Bradley, uh, author of Clade and who has been been on the Coot Street podcast before. Hello, Ian. Hello. That'd be Ian Mond, who's, you know, obviously from the writer and the critic, and he's been doing some terrific reviews online over the last year as he continues his insane project to actually read awards shortlists, which strikes me as a clinically insane thing to do. And then there's me, I'm Jonathan, and I'm on the Kutcher Podcast. So here we all are. Hello, welcome. Welcome to me, and you guys. Hello. <laughs> so here we are on the last weekend of the month. We plan to be here every, you know, every, every last weekend of the month for the, for the rest of the year if things work out. Fingers crossed. And we're here yes. to discuss a new book. That's, that's the whole idea, isn't it? Tell us about the idea for the, for the, for the discussion we're going to have, Ian. Yeah, don't just throw me into it, Jonathan, but okay, I will. Uh, I complained on Facebook because that's where I do most of my whining. It's where, we, frankly, we all do it. Um, and it was basically that because I am reading so many novels from awards lists, I'm an expert on, in this instance, 2014, but have very little knowledge of the books that were published in 2015. And I noted that, and you, Jonathan, came in and said uh, to me via email, how about uh, we change things up and uh, get you to read a new book at least once a month so that you have some knowledge of 2016, and then you can discuss it on a podcast. Hmm. And I thought that was a brilliant idea. Which is great because it wasn't my actual idea, but it's how the conversation went. <laughs> I had something yeah, else well, in mind, but and, 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 and then suddenly James appeared. I well, we talked about did. talking to him about it. I knew, I knew well, James. <laughs> I knew you'd re- you'd read the book at hand that we'll get to in a minute, uh, and you had interesting things to say about it. But I'm glad that you think it's it's worthwhile taking a little bit of time to do it. I'm delighted to do it. Oh, look, I'm a huge. Uh, I'm particularly delighted with this book because I'm a huge fan of Adam's work, and. You know, I, I'm very, very ha- always happy to talk about books I love. I'm always happy to talk about books I hate as well, to be honest. But, you know, <laughs> love is good. <laughs> well, Ian, you're saying you, know, you want to start off maybe talking about, if you like, the strange case of Adam Roberts. Because yes. Adam, Adam fits into the profile of a couple of writers I can think of who are critically acclaimed, who've been writing for quite a while, and yet <clears throat> don't seem to have made a commercial impact, at least under their own names, I mean, Adam has been producing a novel a year for since two thousand. I think it's what, in fact, more because this is the book we're about to describe. Discuss the thing itself is his sixteenth novel, along with. Does that count the? Does that count the parody novels? That he's no, that excludes the parody novels. So he's okay. vastly prolific. Not only not only sixteen novels and several short story collections and uh, another ten parodies and half a dozen books of criticism. I mean, there's, there's very little that he hasn't tried his hand at. Yes, and, and obviously he's an, and he's an academic as well, so he's probably written all sorts of academic stuff that we're not aware of. Yeah. So, so what's your, what was your impression of Adam Roberts when you w- went to first read his stuff? Well, I, I've known of him as a writer, mostly through his criticism for a number of years, but also through, through his books, but I never, ever felt compelled so I'm one of the bad people in this to pick up one of his novels and I'm not sure why uh, it just it just never it never happened and it only happened for the first time last year because I'm reading awards shortlists and bet and that's how I'm going to pronounce it because I don't know how to pronounce b-e-t-e with that little thing on the top of the e um, it could be bete I don't know but anyway um, that was uh, that was nominated for a John Campbell Memorial Award and uh, it was the only it was the only award that it got nominated for. So if, if he had not got on that list, I wouldn't have read it. So I'd still be a Adam Roberts uh, virgin, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I read that and was blown away by that particular book. And now having read Thing Itself, which we'll get to in a second, I'm blown away by that, spoiler alert. Um, and I'm just thinking, what, what's, what's, what's happening here? I mean, because it's not like... He, he, it's how do I better put this better? You know, people like uh, Niall Harrison or Abigail Nussbaum or all those sorts of uh, UK Graham Slight, those those types have been talking up Adam Roberts for for a number of years. Yet you just it's it, I would have expected him to have hit more commercial success, which well, sounds horrible because I mean I would I am any books yeah. himself. Well, I, I just, just feel that you know it's 
Uh, yeah. Okay. Anyway, well, hold that I'm thought for a second, because I want to just say, James, how about you? Have you, as a reader, you know, encountered uh, Robert's work? How long have you been reading his stuff? Um, look, I read some of his fiction years ago. I remember reading Yellow Blue Tibia back in about two thousand and nine, and thinking it was kind of like lots of his books. I mean, there's a kind of level of high concept about his fiction, which is always fascinating. But I think, oddly enough, the way I came to him mostly was through reading his online criticism. And I'm trying to cast my mind back to which of the, you know, dozens of blogs that he set up it was that I was reading. I actually don't remember which one of them it was. But, I mean, there was something... I mean, look, I find him totally remarkable. He is a man who clearly has a full-time job as a professor at a university, Mm -hmm not as a professor of science fiction. So, you know, he, in a sense, he's got this whole other thing that he's doing with his life. You know, I know from social media, he has a family. He is producing f- frequently thousands and thousands of words of really high-class criticism every week. He's producing a novel a year. He's producing parody novels. He's producing <laughs> short fiction, you know, and then he has this kind of social media presence, which, you know, is just kind of endless, you know. And, I mean, if the stuff was thin, perhaps that would be more comprehensible. But there's something about, you know, the stuff is not thin at all. The stuff is incredibly impressive, both at a kind of intellectual level and you know, at a kind of textural level. I mean, we're going to talk about thing itself in a moment, but one of the things that's fascinating about him is that, you know, the books are kind of dense at a kind of linguistic level, so they often look quite easy, but they're not. Mm. You know, and, you know, they're deeply embedded in a, within the genres and the things that he's writing about. I mean, I remember about three or four years ago, and Ian will respond, will we'll understand what I'm talking about here. He did reviews of the entire book a short book a long list within about two weeks yeah. of being announced. You know, and he'd done yeah. you know, three thousand word reviews of all fourteen books or something. And it was just you know, how? How yeah. you know, I mean, I'm sorry. You know, I, I just can't even imagine how you manage that. Yeah, I yeah, I have the same yeah, I wondered how do you stop time somehow? <laughs> I, I, and, I you know yeah. A, a brilliant and brilliant, insightful, hilarious, very funny. He's extremely funny reviews of mm. these books. Yes, I mean, I, I know we mentioned I mentioned before his um his his brilliant reviews, which which should have won awards, millions of them, of the Robert Jordan uh, yeah. Wheel of Time books. They, they, I mean, that, that, that that's not the be all and end all, but that they, those themselves were just genius. But yeah, the Man Booker reviews just blew me away. How smart they were. Mm. And he did them in about two weeks. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, it's the combination of the sheer volume of it and that it's really good. You know, I mean, you know, you can usually manage one or the other. (laughs) Managing them together is always, is always, is always quite something. And as I say, you know, it's not like he's locked away in a room doing it either. I mean, he's on Twitter every 30 seconds, 24 hours a day as well. You know, so I mean, it, but uh, I'm, a, I'm a great admirer because I mean, I think the novel you're talking about before, Bet, and I want to say I don't know how to say it either. Um, from last year was one of my favourite books of the year. You know, I mean, it was a hugely impressive, funny, and really, uh, just a really clever novel, but a very, but a very unsettling and and kind of sly one at the same time. I thought it was a terrific book. You know, and it makes me. Yeah, you know, I think it's a. Uh, I find really regret the fact that they don't get more. I guess they get critical attention, but more. Uh, I guess kind of attention in the world, if that makes sense. Well, see, I think yeah. he struggles because partly because he's frankly he's a British writer and he's a British writer of a particular type. You know, he's been writing for you know since two, since two thousand. I mean, when I first encountered his works, I mean, I read his stuff back when they first came out. Salt and On and Stone, the first three books. And there are books that they wore their influences very heavily on their sleeves. I, I think you could very much see the you know, who he had been reading and who he was influenced by as those books came out. And actually, at the same, around that time, I read what was I think still quite a brilliant unpublished novella that were, that pastiche Tolkien. And it wasn't Tolkien in the A.R.R. Roberts style. It was alternate um, adventure in the Shire called Ring. I've got a manuscript of it somewhere in the house still. 
and it's a really great piece. And I remember thinking, well, this guy can clearly write, but when I see him over here, I can't see who he is, if you know what I mean. And there's just enough attention for him to get overseas editions of his books, I think. And then there's this long period, it feels like, where, say from mid-2000s to about 2010, where he had books coming out, but no one was really paying a whole lot of attention. And then he wrote New World, Arm, uh, New World Army, which, which I remember getting a lot of attention from the UK, and I think had a US edition. May have been the last of his books to, uh, at this point to have had a US edition. And then, you know, sort of, he started getting nominated really regularly for the BSFA, uh, for the Clark. Um, people started saying great things. About, you know, I remember a couple of years back, people were praising Jack Glass, absolutely sort of to, to the ground. And yet, there's this sort of feeling that, and it's, I don't think it's justified in some ways, that um, he's this intellectual who's kind of playing at things rather than somebody who's you know really sort of serious about what he's doing and yet you know the exact opposite is, is plainly true I, 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 sorry well I, I do sort of think and i'd be interested, interested to know what you guys think if that idea of being in the best kind of way intellectually facile becomes a negative you know there's plainly an inquiring mind and a really talented writer working but there's no fixed point of attention or doesn't appear to on a casual look. Do you think that's what, what keeps people from engaging with his career? Yes. I think there's a lack of um, familiarity. You're never sure what you're going to get when you pick up an Adam Roberts, Roberts book. And that potentially pushes people away. Um, I, I think, yeah, yeah, I think that's part of it. Um, but, you know, broad generalisations, obviously. Um yeah, uh, James. What do you think? Because the... um, look, I mean, I, you know, I'm a novelist myself. The uh, things that people like and don't like are a deep mystery to me. Um, but um, <laughs> uh, but I mean, look, I think I do think that for most novelists, and not all, but one of the things that is most deleterious to your career is to be original and to do different things. You know, so if what what publishers and audiences want from most writers is for them to do the same thing again, just slightly different, and Adam doesn't do that. He does every book is, as you say, very very different from the last. I mean, I wonder also whether there is something about, in an odd kind of way, it's kind of difficult writer to pin down. It's kind of what Jonathan was talking about about there being this sense that perhaps there's something slightly glib, and I, I actually don't think there is. But I do wonder whether the, you know, he's very funny, he's very quick, you know, he's very self-deprecating. And I wonder whether that, in a sense, makes it harder to get a handle on the books um, in, in some way. It's, it's interesting because he's certainly not, there's certainly not a lack of emotional engagement. I was actually thinking before we started about that a wonderful short story, which was in one of your best SFs a couple of years ago, mm. Jonathan. About the about the physicists and the equations. Was it and what did Telemon do? That one. That's it about the universe running down. Yeah. And I mean, that's just it's a beautiful story, and it's just heartbreaking. You know, it's so sad. You know, and there's a kind of core of I mean, simultaneously this kind of big idea, but then this really profound kind of human thing going on in it. And I think all of his books are like that. I mean, all of them have a kind of deep emotional structure as well as a kind of an intellectual structure. I think that's what's, what's interesting about him. But I think as Ian says, it's very, uh, I think unpredictability is actually, you know, it's a really good thing for an author to be in terms of having a kind of commercial career. It's really not a good thing to be at all. Well, I think, I, I think he, this is going to say, it might sound odd, but it's in a sense he, he'd, have, he'd have probably got, better praise or, or more interest if he was a literary writer because um, if I look at based on my awards reading of the last 12, 18 months, uh, there's no doubt that, that, that there is a distinction between the sort of novels that uh, will appear on a genre awards list versus what will appear on a literary awards list and that should come as no surprise. It's not a great observation but it's more the thing that you will obviously get more series novels. I mean, I just read the Philip K. Dick uh, nominees for this year and there's six books nominated, of which five are in a series. Four of them are book ones, one is a book three, and then we have one standalone novel. I mean, and, and Now, yes, I know that that's paperback originals, and paperback books seem to be series books, but 
that, but there is a thing here where, you know, he he doesn't do that. He doesn't write series. Roberts doesn't write series novels. He doesn't have a franchise of his own. He does. He doesn't come back to the same world. He does his own new thing. And when you go back to a, a literary sort of uh, perspective, where you are seeing mostly standalone books or books that are vaguely linked. But but really are in a sense standalone. He, he sort of would fit better there, except he doesn't write the stuff that it probably intimidates a, a literary crowd. So he, he doesn't fit. Yeah, he's he's <laughs> he's sadly outside both camps for, in a sense. Well, I, I think you can see something in how his mind works. A couple of years ago, I was doing a book called Reach for Infinity, right? And the remit for the book was to write a story about how he got off Earth into space. And you can kind of imagine the kind of stories you get. And I need to get a couple of them. But Adam's response was to produce a story called Trademark, Trademark Bugs, A Legal History. Yeah, that's which brilliant. Is, I've read Which that. is that's an brilliant. academic paper from the future about private corporations releasing genetically modified pathogens. Yeah. And you're kind of going, that to me synopsizes the whole story. It's like he's coming at it from a quirky, admittedly intellectual um angle i have to say though and this is i mean you've said james that he's funny and i think he is and i think his writing can be intensely moving the enemy of refer well the, the negative to referring to him as an intellectual writer or an academic writer is that it gives you the impression that the work is emotionally distant it gives you the impression that it's maybe manipulated that it's maybe a, a, you know, a del deliberate like a trial to, to do something rather than writing up trying to write a, a terrific story and yet when you sit down and read the novels and i mean i look back at the ones i've not read and just how f much he's skipped around the place writing it i mean when, when you put out what, two book you know, two novels in 2014 20 trillion leagues under the sea about restoring or built building a replica of uh, the uh, nautilus and then bet, but before that, you know, he's writing all kinds of strange stuff. It means that the reader is never, well, generally not able to readily get get a, a grasp on him. And this, and I think because of the intellectual label and the academic label, it seems to make it, the work less attractive, not even so much to Brit American readers or non-British readers, but to publishers. And that makes it harder for his work to ever get that, attention i mean the various ways we you know we measure attention whether they be reviews or award nominations or sales i mean my understanding is that his parody novels were actually very very uh successful commercially but you know the actual the, his, the, the novels under his own name really have been you know i don't know how well they do commercially it's none of my business how well they do but they seem to be just enough to keep golan's publishing them and it's like you want to sort of take your hat off as well just as a sideline to publishers out there who keep going because the, when i was looking at, at his career the writer that he started to remind me of was um barry malsberg ah uh, yeah good one who is a, a a terrific writer and a really again facile smart writer uh, and actually, who interesting enough, I think the last novel that he had published is a book called The Remaking of Sigmund Freud. And that echoed back to me for the thing itself a little bit for, for obvious enough reasons, I think. And so, and, and Barry also struggled, I think, to get the recognition he deserves in, in the field. And so I think there's that. There's this thing where it's, if you're not sort of big epics or big spaceships or terrible horror or something it's very difficult to get people to really focus on you and value your work and, and discuss it and pay attention to it. Because, I mean, like I say, if you look, if you're a Jack Glass and then 20 trillion leagues onto the sea and you heard he had another book coming out, you'd be going, I've got no idea what the hell it's going to be. And if, in fact, if I said to you now, I mean, and I finished reading the thing itself barely three, four hours ago, what do you think Adam Roberts is going to do next? I'd have to say I have no damn idea at all. Yeah, but I'll, here, I'll ask you a question. Would, do you know what China Mabel's going to do next? Apart from yeah, next I do. Yeah, I do. Okay. But, but, okay. I mean, beyond whatever has been published in 2016. No, no, I don't, don't mean that I know what China Mabel's going to do in terms of I've seen a list and the next book is The Last Days of Paris, which is coming out later this year. I mean, China writes in a space. China... Do you think so? Yeah, I do. And he, I think he, okay. pl he, he plays with a kind of non-realist, surrealist, fantasy, political group of tropes. Uh, and 
whilst there are some things that sit outside it a bit more when he writes for YA, the adult books are in a space, and you can see that uh, the, the original short stories that he wrote for the new collection last year, the novella that's coming out next month, and from the description of it, the long story, you know, The Last Days of Paris, that's coming out later in the year, all sound of a piece. Yeah, okay. Not a series like the, the new, new Crobazon books, but of a piece. Yeah. And lots of writers, like, you, you, you can't know. Like, if, even Robert Reed, who's, again, enormously facile and can do just about anything. If I said there's a major new Robert Reed novella coming out, you figure, okay, it's going to be one of those great ship stories, or it's going to be one yeah. of these kind of things. Adam Roberts, I've got no idea. Although, having said that, I mean, one of the things you would say about Roberts is that he's an intensely literary writer in the sense that his books are in, absolutely kind of electrically alive to their literary antecedents, you know. And so, you know, this book's riffing on a whole series of other things. Beck was riffing on Animal Farm. It was riffing on a whole series of other... You know, the parodies are clearly doing that alone. I have to confess I haven't read any of the parodies. Um, uh, but, but, you know, you have a sense always that he is incredibly aware of the traditions that he's operating in. But he, his awareness is of a kind of interesting brand because it's not about you know one of the things he absolutely doesn't do is deliver the kind of sugar hit that i think a lot of you know i'm about to venture into dangerous territory but i mean i think there's a kind of sugar hit that a lot of genre readers are after from books you know they want a particular kind of story they want a particular kind of emotional affect they want you know particular kinds of things that will happen he doesn't do any of that but the books are incredibly aware at a quite deep level of the kind of the generic conventions and tropes that they're working with, their literary antecedents, you know, all of those kinds of things. So it's very interesting, in, I think, in that sense. Yeah, I, I do get a little bit... I agree with you, but you get uncomfortable when you start speaking that way and that you start to think, well, he's really for the elite and the, the, the hoi polloi... <laughs> Uh, that's not for them. I know that's not what you're saying, but it, it's... No, it, it, it actually isn't what I'm saying. I mean, I understand what you're saying. So I said I felt like I was in dangerous territory, but I mean, I don't feel like the book is... I don't feel like his books... You know, you don't feel like you've read this kind of book before when you read it, just what, what I'm saying. You don't feel like... Yeah, okay. You know, you, you don't know what the kind of emotional payoff you're going to get will be. So they're, they're very interesting, I think, in that... In that kind of way, there's a kind of they're just very alive to what's around them, which I find really interesting. Which is a good word to be using when we talk about thing itself. Yeah. Um, well, I, I do think he tends to. And I, I mean, if you said to me that what he did was he was researching his entry for the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, say, and then he started with an idea that riffed off something, and that's how he ended up writing something about Verne or about. Jonathan Swift or about whatever that would feel to me like a really plausible organic way that the work that he's doing evolves you know but there's this and we've talked about it already there, there's this commitment to academic work there's you know there's this body of criticism this fascinating group of reviews he's obviously deeply well read in the field and very thoughtful about the field and in that great uh, the tr that great tradition that idea that there's an ongoing dialogue in the field that's what he's doing. He's laying down another you know, chunk of the dialogue on a particular theme, but he's also doing it from an intense, you know, from very much his own perspective. It is an academic, an intellectual, a well-informed thing. I mean, I don't, I can't imagine too many other people um, putting together the elements that make the thing itself. You know, it's quite an unusual set of elements. That, you know, if you were to look at it. Just as, as a list. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's a book that uh, riffs on James Joyce and has at its philosophic... Well, has at its core Emmanuel Kant. I mean, it's... Who, who, who would... Who? Oh, and... <laughs> and and then as a broader stroke is about um, aliens and, uh, and artificial intelligences and all these other things. You know, Emmanuel Kant <laughs> and science fiction, no one's put those two together <laughs> that true. I'm aware of. No, you, I mean, you know... Neither. Actually, yeah, no, Gary mentioned someone the other day. It has happened before, but I forget what the book was once before. I mean, I studied Kant at university. I mean, I, I've got a master's degree in philosophy, so I studied Kant, and, you know, you, you do the whole thing with um, Bishop Barclay and immaterialism and all that stuff, and you get into the, the thing itself and, 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 and his views. But I, never in, in, my, in my wildest dreams would I have thought that that would be 
the the foundation of a cracking science fiction novel, not just not just a, a, a thought experiment, which this could easily have been. This could just have been a, a as you we've said a couple of times, glib twee thought experiment, mm. but actually a story which has a genuine plot. I mean, th- things happen. There are plot beats. Dramatic stuff occurs. It's not just here how clever I am. I've just taken you know, um, the the critiques or whatever Kant's book was called, or many books were called, and, and, and turn them into a uh, into a science fiction story uh, or a thought experiment. It's, it's so much more than that. And, oh, yeah, and I riff on James Joyce for one chapter as well, just by the by. <laughs> by the by. And, and a bunch of other literary yes, entities by the by. as well. Yes, yes. Well, I guess this means we're turning our attention to the thing itself. Adam Roberts' 16th novel, published in the dead days of December, a time when you, you know, you, you'd think no one will ever pick this book up. They're well, really paying attention to Christmas. Can I stop yeah. you there? Does that speak volumes in and of itself? Or is that, oh, am I just reading too much into things? You're reading too much into it. Okay, thanks. I mean, I, I say that it's happened to me. I had a book come out two weeks before this, you know. Uh, okay. And James, I'm sure you've had terrible luck in terms of when a book comes out at various times in your, in your life. Uh, no, but my partner had a book published in the States on the 1st of September 2001, which probably wasn't the best time to publish a book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. okay, you win. And so there's this book, like I say, late December, out comes this book. It's the 16th book by Adam Roberts. If you're interested in Adam, Adam Roberts, you'll hunt it down. Other than that, it's this book with kind of like flecky-looking snow on the cover. It connects itself to, of all things, you know, sort of John, you know, John Campbell's Who Goes There and John Carpenter's The Thing. It, 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 you're, you're expecting, frankly, monster tales in the Arctic, but it's not really what it is at all. And, no. he, and yet, I also have to say, what struck me when I first picked up the book and started reading is that the chapter or so that he, or the section of the, the opening section of the book, which is set in the Antarctic, is utterly compelling. Yes. And utterly engaging fiction. And you get the feeling that Roberts is a man who could have written 200 or 300 pages of that and made everybody happy and the book would have done very well. It's just that's not who he is. In fact, that's what I thought it was going to be. I thought this would be a book set in the... Is it the Arctic? I get those two confused. But anyway, um, that's what we were going to get. Uh, this, this book that was going to tell that story. But it, it ends after... <laughs> It doesn't end, it continues on, but that particular setting, yeah. in a sense, ends after 20 pages. And more so, the next chapter isn't the next chapter of the story. It's a short story, essentially a short story. You go, what? Well, well, actually, should should one of us describe the book? Yeah, I'm not going to do that because I'm terrible at it. And James is a you know professional critic, so he should do it. Oh. I was, in fact, just saying this morning to someone that describing books is the hardest thing to do. Um, uh Look, okay, the book's called The Thing Itself. It begins with a pair of men in the Antarctic working on a research station where they are trying, they're engaged in a project to to listen for signals, aren't they? Because it's about Fermi's paradox and they're trying to find extraterrestrial life. Um, They rather marvellously are in contact with their... uh, their base back in Adelaide, which I think is very funny. Um, Since I was studying philosophy in Adelaide at the time when this book is set... um, one of them is a kind of affable young scientist. The other is a kind of maniac who's brilliant but obsessed with Kant. Um, he eventually goes off his head and there's a confrontation. Um, the book then cuts away and you start moving through a series of other narratives, one about two young men on a tour through Europe together in 1900, one about a, a young boy who's kind of sold as a catamite back in the, is it the 17th century? Um, 18th century? Oh, gosh, yeah. I can't remember. Um, I think it was the 17th century, yeah. yeah. It's the 17th. And, and then you, it, it cuts back to the original narrative for this man, and it's 20 years later, and his life's been ruined by what happened in the Antarctic, and he is the one who went mad is now in an asylum and very dangerous, but he, he gets scooped up basically by this um, research institute and the institute uh, say so they need him to help with their work. And the conceit is basically that, you know, Kant argued that in a sense, Al, I should get Ian to explain this because he's probably closer to his Kant than I am after all these years, but, no, it can't argue that our perceptions structure our universe in a way that makes it impossible for us to see outside of them. But they thought, well, maybe we could design an artificial intelligence which could see outside them. 
and have realised somewhere along the way that if they could do that, well, perhaps they could actually manipulate reality. And the book kind of flows from there. Is that a fair summation? No, that's that. that yeah, yeah. That, that that's a really good summation. I mean, yeah, it's it's you know that thing that phenomena is only a uh, translation of reality, but not reality itself. That we can never know reality as it truly is. And uh, but that that this view that uh, if we did somehow that, that if we could get beyond the, the the translation that is space and time and go beyond that somehow. Uh, we could uh, travel, and even well, even just saying the word travel in and of itself is is got baggage to it because travel implies you know space and time, but the, it'd be transcendent, which is actually the terminology that Kant himself uses. But anyway, that's that's uh, that's besides the point. But uh, yeah, yeah, that, you've you've described it really well, and all I've done is just re-described it terribly. So <laughs> there you go. No, no, no. <laughs> the other the other two things I think you should say about it is that the book is constructed as a kind of puzzle box so although you've got this continuing narrative with um the with the scientist um it's built around a series of kind of sections which move back and forth in time around that so there's various numbers of them which eventually begin to kind of reflect back into it as a sort of puzzle but also fascinatingly given that as robert says in the acknowledgements he's an atheist the novels also are kind of argument for divinity Yes. Oh my God. I, I forgot. Yes. It's a, <laughs> it's a wonderful discussion on faith and God as yes, well. Yes, it is. And quite powerful even. And yes, thank you for saying that, James. Just one thing I wanted to add to the beginning, just quickly, um, is that it all, it all runs as well on this, um, this, our, our main character, Charlie, I think that's his name, Charles or Charlie, Charles. feeling sorry for the guy who's a complete crackerjack. Because he's got no friends, and saying to him, "Look, what you could choose." Because I get lots of letters in from wherever, from the UK, wherever, you know, my my parents, my girlfriend, whatever. You can take any one of these letters that I'm getting and, and read it, and then start writing to that person if you'd like, in a sense, just to so you've got some contact with human society, which is a lovely, lovely thing in and of itself. But it's then actually, it all, it's actually sorry. a bit more twisted than that because he he sells it to him. Yeah, he sells it for ten pounds. That's right. Yeah. He sells it for. And it's got so it does have that sort of deal with the devil, but it's not really that because it's this, because it becomes this whole paranoid thing because it's not like um, Charlie himself is just the normal guy with a crazy one. He he himself becomes crazy over what the contents of the letter he's just given over for ten pounds was, whether it was from his girlfriend, whether she was breaking up with him, whether she was saying something important that he would need to respond, and he just gets driven mad by it. And that to me is <laughs> just this brilliant way to get you engaged with the character you know it's not necessarily and it and 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 a residue of that lingers throughout the narrative this it, that it all rests on this one letter that he gave to the great to ray or whatever his name is roy uh, tertius yeah d d d for 10 quid it all rests on that and it's just I, I you know i kept thinking it's so british but i don't actually know what that means to say it's so british because it's something that we, people throw around but i don't know if they know but there is something about it that's I don't know. It's just brilliant. That's what I loved it. It's, it's certainly that, very obsessive. It's certainly a very obsessive narrative. You know, there's a lot of obsessive behaviour by by a lot of the characters as you encounter them one after the other. And I actually think it's like it's it's both an intense and an engaging narrative, but it's also a deliberately disorienting one. You yes. know, because you know, you come in the opening section and Roberts appears to lay down all of the ground rules for the story he's going to tell. He introduces Roy, who we've just already described as being brilliant but unstable and possibly you know, violent and dangerous. Uh, we introduce Charles, who appears to be affable and sociable and smart but not as unstable. They're there to research Fermi's paradox. They're, you know, they're, they're in the whole SETI project. Um, and it's only that Roy happens to have brought along this copy of Kant's book that that begins to, to, to meld into it. There is a violent and quite graphic confrontation that leaves Charles badly damaged, and thus with a little picture image of the world being out of kilter as well. And then we flash in, in, in a jarring way, really, to... You know these these two men who are on their grand tour of Europe together in the eighteen hundreds, a time when it's not a good time to be gay, and where you know one of them's obsessed with uh, with Wells, the writings of H. G. Wells, 
You know, this this whole section has already been published elsewhere as a standalone short story, as has one of the others. It's something else I found disorienting was I was reading this and going, I've read this before. Where have I read this before? And then you're right. We we go back. To, you know, we move back to the narrative with with Roy and with Charles, or initially with Charles, and just how much damage he's received physically. I mean, he's physically damaged. He's emotionally damaged. His career's been destroyed. What could possibly happen? And you get this the sense almost like we're, we're moving around through different kinds of British film as well, because you know. This could be a Mike Lee film, almost, this section of it. And then there's the disorienting, again, kind of Joycean section of the book. And then we're, we're back on, as we, we get introduced, the next major plot theme element, which is artificial intelligence. Because, of course, the, way, you know, the whole point, as you're saying, with, with the, you know, the, the philosophies of Kant, is that you know, everything is a reflection of what, what we observe, Fair enough. Well, how can we ever get around that? We never can, so you can never prove it until you build an artificial intelligence. There is one thing he never addresses, though, that occurred to me as I was reading the book. Wouldn't... I mean, he says that somehow they managed to build an artificial intelligence that doesn't reflect a human viewpoint. And the whole novel turns on that ability, even though it happens off stage. And yet, you know, is that possible? Even now, you know, isn't the artificial intelligence that's constructed to some degree a reflection of human uh, human consciousness? Yes. And isn't that the one flaw in the whole wall? Yes. <laughs> but but uh, but I sort of read it. At, well, I personally, I don't know what James view, but I, I I personally read it more as the the child who is born and put into a that old experiment and i can't remember where it where it comes from but who's put into a cave or or a cell and never gets any contact with human so so it it is of human it is biologically a child but it never has contact with humanity so therefore learns its own language its own its own thought processes develop and therefore it's outside of and that's how i saw this ai even though Frankly, it's a very chatty AI, as we discover, and seems to be pretty uh, au fait with, uh, uh, with how to discuss uh, issues of the day. So, yeah, he's having his cake and eating it, I think, but or a bit each way. But, you know, it's um, yeah, I, it wasn't something that bothered me so much. Hmm. James? Um, I wasn't bothered by that until just then. Um, <laughs> and I don't think I'm bothered by it now. I mean, look, I've, you know, I'm not an artificial intelligence researcher, but I mean, there must be ways of developing intelligences that operate in different ways. I mean, I look at something like an octopus where, you know, it's a completely separate experiment in the philosophy of mind. Our nearest common ancestor is kind of half a billion years ago and was a, you know, a a multicellular blob, you know, so I mean they've, their intelligence, which is incredibly high, has evolved entirely independently of ours it's physically realised very differently, presumably their understanding of the world is entirely different, I mean if you're going to evolve a, an intelligence, it doesn't have to be like ours uh, you know, so I mean I, I don't know, but you know, I'm not troubled by the idea that there might be something that's very different. Let me ask you both, were there any points where you felt the novel was losing you? No, no. I, I, I was always fascinated by those alternate chapters uh, because they did feel like complete short stories and mm-hmm. it comes as no surprise to me the two of them have been previously published because they are very complete and so it does sort of merge a full narrative with, I suppose, a mosaic fiction in between. But um, no, it never lost me because, um, I mean, I've seen criticism on, on the web uh, in at least one instance where someone said, well, having those alternate chapters is, is too disorienting, as you've said, Jonathan, and therefore, uh, you know, I just wanted to skip those and get straight back to the, 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 main, the main thread. But I, because, he was, because he's playing with voice, tone, uh, he's riffing on some different styles, but also, you know, and, and doing, you know, there's that brilliant one towards the end about the time, uh, the time war. Yeah. which is just, that is one of the, that is, I assume that's also been published because it feels like, it just feels like a story that's been in a magazine somewhere. Um, it's so brilliant. And I, I was actually excited to go from what is a great narrative, the, the, the Roy Charlie Institution AI story, to one of these, because I didn't know what I was going to get. I had no idea what he, what he was going to do. I, I thought he was going to go chronologically. We'd start in Germany in the, in the early 20th century and jump to, I don't know, the, the World War II or something. But then suddenly you, you 
you don't know where you are. And then you far into the future. There's this other brilliant one that's uh, you know has has a sort of uh, gender fluidity to it, which is just wonderful. And a lot of, and and a lot of them also. Into, so now I'm going off the beta trap. They they also do deal with gender and sexuality, which is just another theme that he just weaves through the through the narrative. But no, it, to answer your question, no, it never lost me because I was constantly excited by the next new thing he was going to deliver up, and it still tell a coherent story. Do you think? Do you think it worked, James? This alternate uh, mosaic of other tales braided in between what I would what I'll, what I'll label as the central narrative of the book. I did. Oh, look, I did. I mean, I do think that's always a risky strategy. I mean, I think anything where you have multiple strands is always risky because there's the risk that readers will like one of them more than the others. Um, but, I mean, I, I mean, one of the things I always like about Roberts's work is that there's a, an interest in, you know, in what language can do, in what voice can do, in many of those kinds of aspects of, I guess, the literiness of writing. Um you know, and I think a number of those sections are incredibly impressive. The one about the boy, um, I think it's a solid gold penny, um, uh, I think is a, a remarkable piece of writing. Is that one, which is the other one that's been published before? I was, uh, I'm sorry, I'm just standing here staring at my copy trying to work well, out whether okay. it tells me which I know that Baedeker's Fermi has been published before because that one I've read elsewhere. I don't think uh, Penelope's Mother or a Solid Gold Penny has been published before. But I would have right. to double check. You know, and that, that begins to seem much less impressive if I'm sitting here kind of going, oh, but Baedeker's Fermi is one I'd read before. Um, yeah. Well, I, I thought most of them were, I mean, I thought the, the other sections I found really very compelling, particularly Baedeker's Fermi and A Solid Gold Penny. But also, you know, the novel, the novel is very clever in the way that it, it kind of unpacks itself as it goes along. Yeah. Yeah, that, and I found all of that very fascinating. I mean, it is also one of those books that you get to the end of it and you're just kind of like, okay, I don't know what to do with what I've got here now. <laughs> but, you know, it is... No, I, I, was not, I was not disturbed by that, that kind of jumping around at all. I mean, I, I, I like novels that take those kinds of formal and narrative risks. I, I think they're really interesting. You know, I mean, I think it's... A, it makes for interesting work, those kinds of disjunctions. And I just want to be surprised. And I've reading so much recently where I'm not surprised at all. And I don't mean in terms of plot twists, because even plot twists can lack surprise because of just the feel and inevitability to them. I just, just, just the surprise in that fact that there is a shift in tone, uh, just a shift in tone from one chapter to the next, which, yes, can be off-putting. If you, if you, if you want to sit back on a lazy Sunday and knock this thing off in, in a day, yes, that's going to upset you but if you if you have a willingness to be challenged just a little bit uh just that that that, that, that gives it a different texture different feel it's great it, it's like a great meal that doesn't just taste the same throughout <laughs> to get into food metaphor which is so easy when you're reviewing books so yeah I, yeah look i could see it, it did it lose you because you've asked the question, so yeah. I mean, well, I'm, I'm curious because I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think. I mean, how would I describe this book? I'm saying I was talking to uh, Marianne, my wife, before the podcast about the book, uh, and how would I describe it? You know, you're sort of going, you know, middle-aged British academic who's got a history writing uh, fantasy parodies, uh, got, writes a science fiction novel based on the the philosophy of Immanuel Kant about AI and uh, the existence of God. And Fermi's paradox, and and you kind of go, I think that sounds actually really quite fascinating, but for for a bunch of people, it, it might, you know it may not. But but that's the kind of the odd duck that we've got, and is seems absolutely of a piece with the the odd duck that is the rest of of, of Robert's uh, bibliography. I want to ask, how do you feel about the ending of the book? I mean, because you, you've got the the end of. Um, Charles and uh, Ray's, I think it, whatever his name is, uh, narrative, and then you have a closing section with Immanuel Kant, Kant himself. Well, I don't think they name. No, they don't. It's, cl- it's clearly Immanuel Kant. Well, but it's, not, it's, not, only is it, not only is it clearly, but, but uh, Roberts actually takes the time in the acknowledgements at the end of the book to actually say, uh, you know, right off the bat, you know, that it's based on. Uh, stories of Kant's last days to, uh, from Thomas De Quincey. Yep. So, yeah. 
James, you want to go first, James? Or? Yeah. Uh, I thought, no, I mean, speaking as someone who's an atheist, um, I, I found the final section actually very moving. And the final lines are, I found them incredibly beautiful, actually. You know, I mean, and, but kind of fascinating as well. I mean, it's a fascinating thing to watch a writer writing a book that leads them to a place that they don't necessarily believe in a rational sense. Does that make sense? You know, I find that as a, yes. speaking as a writer, I find that a fascinating thing to watch somebody doing. So I'm going to interrupt. So uh, there is an apocalyptic storm outside at the moment. So if there's noise, that's it's the fact that it's as dark as night out there at the moment, pouring with rain. So um, if there's great cracks of thunder in a moment, that's what it is. <laughs> it sounds very relaxing, actually. I, I sort of want to go to sleep. It sounds very assured. I must say, I mean, there was a part of me that, that thought at the end of the last section with, with uh, Roy and Charles, you're kind of going, what's there to add? But there's like this grace note section that, that feels that it sets that it sets the whole book off, that, that, it, that it seals the story, that uh, is, 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 as you say, very moving. And isn't it fascinating that the word you fall on is grace note? Because it is about grace. Hmm. <laughs> I also think it's uh, it ties up that uh, the sexuality thread that I was referring to before, and that mm. you know you do get that whole Kant's view on homosexuality, and uh, whether because he himself was unmarried, whether he you know anyway, it's it's it it, it, it sort of ties up there. So you can always question whether it's a bit obvious to have him appear at the end of the book as sort of hello everyone, <laughs> this has all been about my philosophy. How are you all? But, he, but Roberts doesn't allow it to be that, you know, uh, that facile or stupid. It, it, it's so, it's so, it's quite powerful and beautifully written. And um, given that it's it, it's it's not Kant uh, in his height, it's it's his last days, and this is a man who's disintegrating, you know, mentally in the eyes of everyone around him and to himself. And and it's just, uh, yeah, it's 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 uh, magnificent. Well, and I... really, as as of in line with the rest of the novel. And Very much. Shows that Roberts is, and, and shows that Roberts is more than, it is beyond just the, you know, the, the, the smarty pants uh, intellectual writer who's uh, potentially going to get a, a laugh that only 4% of the audience will understand. I mean, anyone can read that final section and frankly the entire novel, but that section in particular and, 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 be, and be struck by the, the emotion there without it being overtly sentimental. Well, I think as well what you get is you get this f really interesting and really nuanced and really moving uh, portrayal or, or discussion of the whole issue of homosexuality through history, you know, and the, the, the thing that gives it its balance, if you like, is the sec that section, the last three days of the time war, because yes. you, know, you, you have this much more positive, subtle, nuanced thing that, that is then laid off against the sadness of the professor, which is in some ways profoundly sad. You know, the, the ending, the, the feeling about Kant, even whether it's the real Kant or not, the fictional Kant's the real life, that balance against the, the violence of a solid gold penny uh, and, and the, the really graphic nastiness of it. And then that count, counterbalanced again against the section from you know, the Grand Tour where you've got these you know, two men who are in a clearly loving relationship but in a society that frowns on it so much that they have to skulk around and, and hide. And it, it gives a wonderful discussion and representation of it, even though, superficially at least, it's never about that. It's a very subtle thing he does. Yeah, well, I, I, yeah oh, sorry. 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 James? You go ahead. No, you go ahead, James. Oh, look, I was going to say one of the things the book is very much about is isolation, you know, and you have these characters who are frequently intensely isolated by who they are. And that that's one of the things that gives the book its kind of emotional substrate, I guess. This book raises a question that comes up again and again, and I'm curious to touch on it again here because it is relevant. Stan Robinson, when he writes, is is well known for both including large portions of background text in his 
novels and for defending this, this use of info dump, as it's called, as a primary technique of science fiction. And there's this book, and it's not a hugely long book, but it does feature large pieces of background information laid into the text and as a real asset to the text. So I'm curious whether you think it was a positive in you, to your point of view or whether you ever struggled with, with the, the amount of info dump on Kantian philosophy and all this kind of thing or whether it all worked and seemed to be well integrated which I felt it was that's the key there, well integrated I think there's a, I understand where uh, Robinson's coming from but there's a difference between exposition where two characters either A uh, repeat stuff that they would already know but it's really there for the service of the, of the reader or B the the it's just this clumsy lump of stuff gristle that's there <laughs> uh, sort of in a sense to pad the novel out whereas what 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 aurora as an example does um it, it's having it it's using that exposition as as a, as a point of discussion and the same here with uh, the thing itself in that in that the exposition is is there to to elicit well it's partly there to explain things to the characters so, so Charles is learning stuff. It's not like he goes, oh, well, I already know this, but thanks for telling me. He, he's learning stuff and also to begin a point of discussion with the reader and to spark in their heads the ideas that Roberts requires of you so you can get through the next second half of the book. So it, 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 it's, prop, it's, integra- it's exposition that's integrated properly within the narrative and makes sense within the narrative, both in terms of story and in terms of reader experience. That's how I see it. James? Well, I... I think it works fine here. I would say, as an aside, that one of the things... I think we tend... I think the ways people think about what makes a good novel are often quite narrow. Um, And people confuse, in a sense, one of the ways novels can work with the way novels work. And, I mean, the novel's always been a an extremely hybrid and fairly various form. I mean, you go right back to really early books, like the really early novels like Robinson Crusoe, you know, and they're filled with, you know, kind of uh, a kind of, you know, they use documents, they use all all kinds of things. Um, And, you know, I just think people have become very uncomfortable about all of that often when when they're looking at, when they're looking at fiction. I mean, if it's not all, you know, done perfectly in the kind of manner of a kind of piece of uh, a finely tuned commercial creature, they become very, they become very uncomfortable with that. I mean, it's actually one of the things I thought I found very exciting about reading The Free Body Problem a year or two ago was being reminded that, you know, books don't actually have to be sort of well told in that narrow sense. I mean, they kind of bounce around generically. They can bounce around you know, formally, they, they can do all of those kinds of things. And I, I find that very exciting and very liberating when it's done when it's done well, and I think it's done very well. Yeah, I just, but I do want to emphasise that I, I personally hate exposition, <laughs> but, and I hate it in that, uh, in that, and I always come back to um, urban fantasy type books where in the first 30 pages the author is desperate to world build for you rather than allow the world to just develop on its own. And that's that sort of exposition that feels like a bit of gristle between the two. I mean, you just, why? You know, um, why, why do that? And, and science fiction novels of the last year have done the same. I'm not going to mention in particular. I can think of one right now at the top of my head, but I won't say, where the there's um, the author just feels this need to have to explain every cog and wheel because I don't know if it's if it's a fear or, or, or an insecurity in their own writing that, that the reader won't get it. That's that's the bad exposition. The bit where you could say like and Gary's mentioned it on the on the Coot Street podcast a couple of times where uh, Melville with Moby Dick just goes off on tangents about economy or whatever or about whale blubber. Uh, not that I've read Moby Dick, but that that's sort of just off tangent where, you know, the writer goes crazy on a topic is odd to us today because yes we like things pared down but that's a different type of exposition that's where the the author is <laughs> put getting on the on their on this on their box and, and trying to make a point but it, it, there's something exciting about that if it's done well mm-hmm. not to say that roberts is, is is entering into moby dick territory with this book but it's uh it, he's integ- 
integrated. I think it's the perfect word. He's taken the exposition. The exposition is there. It's clearly there. It's not hidden. But it's there both in terms of explaining the plot uh, to a character who doesn't know what's going on uh, and also setting up the reader for what this is all about and in a way that isn't just, here's my world building. The vampires do this and the zombies do that. And, you know, that we call it... Uh, uh, this because of this reason you know it's you know what i'm saying it's not that ungainly bulky sort of exposition that no it's very much very much an animated discussion that's integrated to the evolution of the story that you need to have and i think what makes it very well functions very well is that we're also dealing something that no one's most of the readers probably aren't deeply familiar with so you, you if, if you want to understand the story you need kantian philosophy described to you but you don't want five pages of Wikipedia pasted into the middle of the book. You need something more more uh, engaging. No, but and Roberts is too good to do that, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, 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 it's, and it's funny as well. When, the, when he's talking, when Charles is talking to the AI, a lot, there's a lot of exposition in there. But yes. it's funny and it's delightful. And, he does, and in fact, Roberts, of course, because obviously he gets bored, I think, when he's writing and needs to excite himself. So he does it as a, as a Socratic play almost. Mm. Um, that section that's essentially a Socratic play. So uh, it's, it's, it's the, fantastic. The long dialogue section, of course. Beg your pardon? Oh, there's the long Socratic dialogue section, which I completely forgotten about. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. It's 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 wonderful, you know. And, and again, it's absolutely bursting with exposition. But it's it's again, he's changed the form. He's done. He's doing interesting stuff. It isn't. He's like you say, John, but not just. Five pages of Wikipedia cut and pasted in, and and you know that from a mile away. Yeah, I mean, I was interested. I stumbled across uh, a review by Paul DiFilippo of the book, and he said that if Greg Egan and Stanislaw Lemmed conspired to rewrite John D. McDonald's The Girl, The Gold Watch, and Everything, the result might have been half as ingenious and gripping and funny and scary and invigorating as the thing itself. And I think he's really pretty close to spot on. It is ingenious, and but it is gripping, and it is funny. It is scary. I mean, it's, at times it's almost graphically violent. You know, there, yes. there, 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 there are moments of almost shocking violence in the story. There, yes. But there are moments... You're, you're of, thinking about, apart from the 17th century bit, you're thinking the part in the hotel room? Yeah. Yes. Yes, very <laughs> much. Yeah, yeah, very much. Uh, now, I, I guess the other thing is, for all that... I mean, I recommend this book wholeheartedly, and I, I think you both do as well. Not to speak for you, but I think you do. This discussion yes. on usually for some that does contain all kinds of spoilers for the books and these discussions well doesn't really give you much of an idea of what it's like to read the book, does it? No. You really need to read this book for itself. Yeah, I see what you did there. <laughs> you yes. like that? Yeah, thank you. Yes, yes, yes. Each each of our phenomena will be different in, in interpreting the new mana of the novel. Yes. <laughs> Actually, I had a curious uh, imp- impulse at the very end of it. I'm curious whether you had it as well. I kind of wanted to go back and reread it almost right away just to re-experience how it all integrated together and to look for further echoes through the alternate non-Roy and Charles sections of the book to see how it all came together and bedded together because I felt it was really well assembled but I suspect it's actually better assembled than I realised because I wasn't initially awake to exactly what he was doing by the time you get to the end. Uh, I, I don't reread books, but yes, I did have that urge. Yes, especially the opening scene, the Antarctic scene, where there's a lot packed in that you're not aware is there until you finish the book. So uh, that's the opening. Um, but yes, I'm, I'm yeah. the same. Sorry. So, is there anything else you want to say about the books, guys, or or, or do, you, do you feel we're mostly done? <coughs> I, I think if you were trying to describe what the book was like, I would say it's quite brilliant. It's very very funny. Um, it is kind of dazzling at a kind of intellectual level and, you know, incredibly intellectually gripping. Um, it's very various and it's ultimately incredibly moving, I think. You know, I mean, in, in a way that you don't expect, you know, there's something just very beautiful about where it ends up. And it, it's a very improbable book in lots of ways. I think it's also slightly disorienting at times and I think that's to its benefit yes and my final word would be that uh, it's been it was long listed for the bsfa yes i've come back to awards again um so chance it could appear there but i'd like to you know it's it's a sort of book that should appear on a clark or i mean i think it should appear on a bunch of awards but uh but definitely a, a clark and it's it's got that quality to it 
And I dare say it'll get on a John Campbell Memorial Award as well, which it should, because it's fantastic. Which I'm <laughs> given the subject. Well, well, yeah, I mean, I'm glad you touched on this, because we've sort of circled around and we've talked about being published in the dead days of December, but this is a, for all this is a 2016 discussion. Uh, this is a 2015 book. It came out in December 2015, um, and our January 2016 podcast to talk about that. But that means that it's a 2015 eligible Hugo, it's eligible Hugo eligible book, though I'm not sure it'll be included in that dialogue, though it deserves to be, along yes. with a whole bunch of other books like Dave Hutcherson's book and whatever else. Yes. Um, it also, I, I would be shocked if it's not highly featured in the BSFA, highly featured in the Clark, and all of the English awards, I hope it also begins to get some attention in the US. I hope there's some attention, some chance of getting a US edition. And I, I guess the feeling that I came away with is more than anything, and I'm, I'm probably unlike the pair of you in a sense because you'd both read Bet last year, and that is it left me possibly for the first time in a long time, really excited to read the next Adam Roberts book. Yeah, uh, Yes, I'm in that space, yeah. Uh, Adam Roberts, when he, when he publishes, I'll read. That's, that's now my, my... There's not many writers like that at the moment, but when he publishes, I'll read. Would you go back and read the older books? Yes, I'm definitely thinking of that. Although you've really knocked down the first three. No, I'm kidding. No, no I, I think they've got a lot to offer, but it's hard not to see... <coughs> no, I'm really interested in reading Jack Glass and By Light Alone, those two in particular. Um, so, yeah, yeah, no, I would I would definitely go back, yeah. Now that I've cut down how many award <laughs> lists I'm reading <laughs> by, you know, a quarter, uh, yeah, I've got a bit more time. And, yeah, anyway, yeah. but yes, I would. And I, I suppose the three of us should, I mean, this is probably not the spot where we, we will work it out, or maybe it is, but we are going to come back at the end of February with a, a second discussion in this ongoing series. We don't know really what next. We've got a couple of ideas, and I guess what we'll announce it through the, you know, online or something as we get closer to the time in case anybody wants to read along with us. Maybe we can invite people to read along and they can post and comment. Yes, I think well, that's. I think it's great. It works well. I think with writer and the critic. Uh, not that I actually know how many people do read along, but you get to you see on on people's Goodreads page if you're friends with them that they've got the book read because they're waiting for the next episode, which is always nice. So yeah, I think it's a good idea. Yeah. Well, with that, then I'm going to say that, and we'll maybe talk about it afterwards. But uh, my sincere hats off to, to Adam for a, a great book. I'm really eager to read the next one. If you're listening to this, if you're getting this because it's in the Cood Street feed. I strongly recommend, very strongly recommend that you consider looking at the thing itself. It is just a terrific book. And as a side thing, now that he's no longer with, with Golance as well, my hat's off to Simon Spanton, who apparently edited this book for Golance and plainly did a terrific job. So Yes. And with that, I will talk to you both next month. It's been wonderful. You.